I've spent a lot of time this week thinking about how I respond when I know I've messed up, when I know I've, I've blown it, when I know I've fallen short, when I know that I've sinned, and I come to that realization, how do I react and how do I respond? Maybe sometimes I lose my cool with my family and get upset, say something I shouldn't. If you ask my wife, she'll tell you that hardly ever happens. If you ask my boys, they'll tell you that happens all the time. So I'll let you decide which one of those is right. But I've been thinking about how, how do I react when I know you blew it, Wes. You, you shouldn't have gotten upset. You shouldn't have lost your temper. You shouldn't have lost your cool. And how do I respond? I, I think that I tend to do one of two things, either downplay or despair. On the one hand, I have a tendency to downplay it, and I say, well, listen, I, I only got upset because of what you did. I only got upset because, I, I mean, I've had a long week, I had a lot on my mind, I make excuses, or I say it's not a big deal, or I tell myself, you know, other people get way madder than I get, and I, I don't do that very often, and I downplay whatever it is that I did, or whatever it is that I said, or whatever it is that I, I didn't do that I should have done. Or, or on the other hand, I have this tendency to despair. And when I, I know I've done something I shouldn't have done or said something I shouldn't have done, then I despair and I say, I'm, I'm worthless. I don't know why you love me. I don't know why you put up with me. I, I think that about God. I think that about my family. How about you? When you know that you've said something you shouldn't have said, or done something you shouldn't have done, or gone somewhere you shouldn't have gone, or maybe you failed to do something you should have done and you're confronted with it. Maybe, maybe you just come to your own realization and you are just struck with the fact that I blew it, I messed up, I shouldn't have done that, and you realize that you've sinned against somebody in your family, against your friend, against your neighbor, against your coworker, but mostly against God. How do you handle that? How do you respond and react to the realization that you've fallen short, that you've messed up, that you've sinned? Do you downplay it like I do? Do you say, well, you know, I mean, everybody messes up. Everybody makes mistakes. I'm only human. It's not a big deal. I mean, other people have messed up way worse than I have. I, I don't know why I should feel bad about this. It's really not any big deal, and I only did it because of these other things that are going on, or I only did it because of what they did, or I was only responding, I was only reacting, it's only because of this, or it's only because of that, or, you know, it's, it's really, at the end of the day, it's not a big deal, nobody really got hurt, and you downplay your sin, or, or on the other hand, do you despair, and you say, I'm unlovable, I'm worthless, I don't know why anybody would love me, God could never forgive me, it's over, I've blown it, it's, my sin is too big, it's too great, nobody could ever forgive me, there's no going back now, it's all over. We have this tendency, don't we? Maybe we, maybe we do both, maybe you tend to do one or the other, or maybe, like me, you, you tend to do either one of those, and I think that's why this series that we're doing this month is so incredibly important, because this story of First and Second Samuel that goes all the way through from First Samuel to Second Kings, First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, that tells the story of Israel's sin that tells the story of Israel and Judah and how they were God's people and God brought them into the promised land and they had this kingdom, but ultimately, they threw it all away. 
because of sin, and they were exiled into Babylon. And that's where the story ends. And so when you read this story and you think about what's happening here, on the one hand, there's no way to downplay, but on the other hand, there's no need to despair. On the one hand, you see that there's no way to downplay Israel's sin. This is a big deal. And there is no good excuse for doing the wrong thing. This is a huge deal. There are monumental consequences. You could have had everything. You had all of these blessings that God gave you and he brought you into this promised land and you despised him and turned your back on him and rebelled against him. You were supposed to be this special people. But in the end, you acted like everybody else. You acted like the the Gentile nations when you were supposed to be God's holy people. But at the same time, as you read this story, while there's there's no way to downplay their sin, there's also no need for them to despair and think it's over. It's hopeless. We can never be forgiven. Throughout the entire story, you see God continuing to extend his hand of mercy and say, if you'll only repent, if you'll only come back to me, if you'll only be the people that I'm calling you to be, I will renew my covenant with you. I will forgive your sins. You can be my people again. And so all throughout this story, you see that there is no way to downplay sin. And there's also no need to despair when you sin because if you will repent, God will forgive you. And so this whole story from 1 Samuel all the way through 2 Kings is to teach Israel this story. And right here in the middle of it is the story of David. And David stands as a monumental example of this. He embodies this truth that even though he was a man after God's own heart and God made a special covenant relationship with him just as he did with all of Israel, David blew it and sinned monumentally. But there's no need to despair because David knew that if I return to God and repent of my sin, God will have mercy on me. The the consequences of the sin are monumental. The consequences of the sin are huge and there's no way to downplay it. There's no excuse for it. It's no way to say, this is no big deal. Everybody messes up. Everybody makes mistakes. I'm only human. I only did it because of this, that, or the other. But at the same time, God is willing to forgive And so this example of David is is put here on display as an object lesson for Israel, who at the end of the story is in captivity, in exile, in Babylon, so that they know there's no way for us to downplay our sin. But at the same time, there's no need for us to despair, because if we will repent, God will forgive us. But not only is this story for their sake, it's for ours as well, isn't it? Because we find ourselves in the exact same situation so many times where we realize we've sinned, we blew it, we did what we shouldn't have done, and there's no way, and we must stop downplaying our sin. But at the same time, we also need to stop despairing because if we will repent, God will and can forgive us. 
So we, we pick up our story in 2 Samuel chapter 11, and Joab, the commander of the army, has taken the soldiers out to battle, and where is David? He's at home. In fact, he's at home on the couch. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 11 and verse 2. So the army has gone out to battle, and instead of taking them out to battle and out to war, trusting in God to fight with them and do what he was called to do, it says in 2 Samuel 11 and verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David, and I never really paid attention to this before, but it says he arose from his couch late one afternoon. I mean, what was he doing? He was napping, you know? I mean, he was just not only not out at battle where kings were supposed to be at that time, but he was just lazing around the house, just relaxing and enjoying himself. And as he arose from the couch, he was walking on the roof of the king's house. He saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And so what does he do? He asks around about her. David, a married man, asks around, says, who's that? Tell me more about her. And then he finds out that she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And Uriah the Hittite actually happens to be one of David's mighty men, one of his special forces, a man that is incredibly loyal to David, the kind of soldier that any king would say, that is the kind of soldier that everybody should be incredibly loyal to David. And when David finds out that Bathsheba is the wife of Uriah the Hittite, one of his very best soldiers, what does he do? Does he say, oh, she's a married woman? Or, nope. He says, bring her to me. Why? Because he was powerful. Because he was king. Because rich and powerful people often feel like I can have and should have anything I want. He took it for himself. See, that, that's what the kings of the world, the powerful people of the world, that's what worldly people say that masculinity is, taking what you want for yourself, right? You see something that you want and you take it. And all throughout all throughout, again, as we said last week, when we read the story of David, uh, when he's at his best, you say, mm, I want a king like King David. And we say, that, that's why we love Jesus. When David's at his best, we say he kind of points to Jesus. But when David's at his worst, as he is here, when he acts like all the other kings of the world, I say masculinity is seeing something that you want and you take it for yourself. That sort of thing that reminds us of what we despise about humanity when humanity is at its worst, what we despise about ourselves when we're at our worst, all of that reminds us of Jesus. That Jesus doesn't define masculinity as taking what you want for yourself. Jesus doesn't define strength as taking what you want for yourself. Jesus defines strength as giving what you have for others. That's, that's our king. But this king, King David, acted the way that other kings act. 
Instead of being a man after God's own heart, instead of being the one that God calls into a covenant relationship with himself to be God's anointed one, to live and to work in the world, to bring about the will of God, he uses his power and his wealth and his strength and his influence to take what he wants. And of course he does take what he wants. And Bathsheba finds out that she's expecting a child. And what does David do? He makes the situation infinitely worse. Because he can't cover up what's happened. He sends a note with Uriah back to the battle to have him killed in battle. He essentially murders Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, in order to cover up his own sin so that he can take Bathsheba to be his own wife. And it's devastating as you read the story, isn't it? It's devastating. And as you read it, if you don't know where the story's going and you haven't read the rest of the story and you don't know how everything ends up, you think, David, oh man, we had such incredibly high hopes. We had Saul for a long time, and Saul was a king just like the other worldly kings, but we thought, David, you were going to be different. But don't we see that's exactly the message that God is sending to Israel? You were supposed to be different. And we, we ourselves, as we read the story, we look into the mirror, don't we? We were supposed to be different. And we blew it. And we did what we shouldn't have done. We saw something we wanted. And we thought strength means taking what you want for yourself. And we did. We took the fruit. And we ate the fruit. And we sinned. And so... David has done this thing, and I, I don't even know, you know where his mind is after he's taken another man's wife, and he's murdered that man, and he's married the woman and kept her for himself. Where is his mind? But in chapter 12 and verse 1, let's read this story once again. Nathan, the prophet, comes to David and confronts him about his sin. Now, I mean, can you imagine being a prophet, and you're going to the king, to the king to tell him, you blew it. And God is mad at you. You should not have done what you did. I mean, that's a, in most places, that's a good way to die, isn't it? I mean, that's a good way to get your head cut off. You don't say that kind of thing to the king. Why? Because kings can do whatever kings want to do. But God says that's not really true. I'm still the king of kings. And you still answer to me. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how much power you have. It doesn't matter how much influence you have. You answer to me. So Nathan, the prophet, goes to David with this story. The Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds. Now, at this point, David doesn't know that this story has anything to do with him. In fact, apparently, David doesn't even know this is a parable. He obviously thinks this is a real story. So he thinks maybe Nathan's telling him a story about something that happened in a town over here. Hey, king, just want to let you know what's going on. There's, there's this city, and there's two guys there. One of them is poor. He has nothing. And the other guy, he's rich, and he has lots of flocks and herds and all kinds of stuff. But, verse 3, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought, and he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. And 
the lamb used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. I mean, we're, we're supposed to empathize with, with the poor man, right? Not to say, oh, that rich guy, that man, he's, he's got it rough with all those flocks and herds. No, you're not supposed to empathize with the rich guy. You're supposed to empathize with the poor guy, right? Because he's got nothing except this one little ewe lamb, this one little female lamb. And, and this, this lamb, is, it's not like livestock to him, right? It's not like livestock. It's not just another piece of meat. It's not just another place to get wool. In fact, it's not even, it's not even like a pet. I mean, it, it, it is like a pet. I mean, eats his food and drinks from his cup and lies in his arms. But Nathan says it's even, this, this lamb is even more to him than that. It's like family to him. He loves this lamb. There's nothing else in the world that he loves more than this lamb. And he doesn't have other lambs. He doesn't have other flocks and herds. He's got nothing but this one little lamb. And, and you're supposed to say, oh, isn't that, isn't that sweet? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that a beautiful you know, relationship? Verse 4, now there came a traveler to the rich man. So the rich man has somebody knock on his door and say, I want to be your guest. And this rich man was, here's an important word, unwilling not unable, right, not unable, but unwilling to take of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. Unwilling. I don't, I don't know. I got all these lambs. I got all these cows. I got all this food, but I'm not going to take any of that. I could, but I'm not going to. Instead, he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. What? I mean, you're just supposed to be outraged when you hear that, right? It's just outrageous. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, I guess if you're you know, listening to the parable and you think about somebody's, like, poodle or something, right? I mean, somebody just loves this little pet. Loves it. And this rich guy, I mean, he can have whatever food he wants. He's got all the food that he could possibly want. And instead of eating what he already has, he goes to the poor man and takes away the lamb that was like a daughter to him, that was like family to him, and slaughters the lamb and feeds his guest. Then verse 5, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. I guess so, right? Ours was too. We think, how dare you? That's disgusting and ridiculous. Why? Why would you do such a thing? And he said to Nathan, here's David's response to Nathan. As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He's a thief. He took what didn't belong to him. And beyond being a thief, he's pitiless. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Not, not only should the law have stopped him from taking what didn't belong to him, but pity. I mean, he, he should have had compassion enough, just heart enough to look and say, well, this is just a rotten thing to do. Why would I do that to this poor guy? He's got nothing and I've got everything. Why would I take away what belongs to him? 
Just pity itself should have refrained him, but it didn't. And so David rightly says, he deserves to die. And here's, the, here's my judgment. Here's, the, here's what I'm going to bring down. He is going to repay fourfold what he stole because he did it and because he had no pity. And look at what Nathan says to David. You are the man. You are that man. You are the one who was rich. You are the one that had everything. You have wives. But instead, when temptation came knocking, when desire came knocking, you went and took what did not belong to you. And you murdered the man in order to cover up your sin and your crime. Not only should the law have prevented you from doing such a thing, but pity should have prevented you from doing such a thing. And because you did this thing, and because you had no pity, you deserve to die. You are the man. All of that anger and all of that bitterness and all of that righteous indignation that you feel against this fictitious person ought to be pointed at yourself. You are the man. And so Nathan continues to describe to David how he'll be punished for his sin. There, there is no downplaying what's been done here. There is no excuse. There's no good reason. It's, well, everybody messes up. Everybody makes mistakes. We're just human. It just happens. There's no downplaying what's happened here and the consequences are going to be huge. In fact, from this point forward in the story, as you continue to read 2 Samuel, it's all pretty much downhill from here on out. This is a turning point in David's kingdom and life. Things really start to unravel from this point forward. But I, I really want us just to think about David's response. Look at verse 13 of 2 Samuel 12. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Do you see how incredibly important that is? He's the king. And he could say, who do you think you are coming in here telling me I'm the guilty one? Who do you think you are coming in here and accusing me? Who do you think you are coming in here and judging me? No. He owns it. He owns it. He admits it. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And I want us to look at Psalm 51. I know we're kind of getting out of 2 Samuel, but I want us to look at Psalm 51 because Psalm 51 tells us that this was probably written on this occasion when David sinned with Bathsheba and Nathan comes and, and rebukes him. In 2 Samuel, we have, I have sinned against the Lord. But here we expand that idea a little bit further. But I, I, when you read Psalm 51, you have to understand that this psalm was given to Israel for them to continue to sing, not just about David's sin with Bathsheba, but their sin. As individual Israelites, as individual Jews, they needed to keep singing this song and owning their sin and admitting their sin and seeking forgiveness and mercy from God. And us, as God's covenant people today, need to continue to sing psalms like this. Verse 4 says this, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what was evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in, my, in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Now listen, when, when David says, I, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me, I mean, he's not making a, a general statement about all humanity, about depravity or something like that, about how you're born in sin. He's using hyperbole to describe himself. I am guilty. I blew it. I sinned. I did what was evil and wicked and wrong. And then he says in verse 7, purge me with hyssop. Hyssop is, is a branch that the priests would use for purification rituals. Purge me and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. I mean, do you, do you see how important this type of language is? Because it avoids both of the things that we tend to do. It doesn't, even for a moment, downplay the sin. It doesn't, for a moment, make excuses for the sin and say, well, God, you know, I'm just human. You know, God, I'm just, you know, I'm just messed up. I make mistakes. Everybody does it. It's no big deal. Don't worry about it. It doesn't, for a moment, act like this sin or any sin. It's no big deal. But at the same time, David doesn't despair. He knows and is confident that God can and will forgive him. He says in verse 10, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. I'm guilty. And if what you really wanted was a bull or a goat or a lamb, I'd give it to you. But you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. And listen to these words, they're incredibly profound. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. There is no way to downplay the sin. But there is also no need to despair. God, you will not despise. Again, God wants his people to know, and that's why this story is here. I mean, if David was here right now and sitting here for us to sit here talking about his sin and what he did, what he tried to cover up, and the lengths to which he went to hide his sin... I mean, for all time, God has preserved this story in the scriptures so that people would know your sin is a very big deal, but I am a very merciful God. Amen? 
Your sin is a big deal, and he is a very merciful God. There's no need and no way to downplay what you've done, but there's also no need to despair because God will not despise if, if we will admit our sin and repent of our sin. That, that's what faithfulness is. Faithfulness means being quick to admit and quick to repent. As long as we keep hiding it, and as long as we keep trying to cover it up, and as long as we keep downplaying it and saying it's no big deal, everybody does it, or I'm only human, or I only did it because of what you did, or I only did it because of the situation I was in, we will find God to be very harsh. But faithfulness means being quick to admit and quick to repent. And I think about repentance. Do we, do we understand what that means, repentance? It, it isn't just feeling sorry for what we've done. It isn't groveling. It isn't despairing and thinking there's no way God could forgive us. That's not repentance. Repentance is what David displays in Psalm 51. If we were not confident that God was a merciful and forgiving God, then repentance wouldn't even be a word in our vocabulary. The only reason repentance makes sense, the only reason we would say, I'm going to stop doing that and I'm going to start doing what is pleasing to you, I'm going to change my ways and change my behavior, change my heart, change my mind, change my actions, and I'm going to stop going that direction and start going God's direction. The only reason that makes sense is because we are confident God is a merciful and forgiving God. That, that's the kind of people that we need to be, the kind of people that are quick to admit it when we've blown it, quick to admit that we've fallen short and we've sinned and we shouldn't have said what we said or done what we did or gone where we went or failed to do what we should have done. And... And we don't, we don't stay in despair and stay in shame of people that are confident that God is incredibly merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, that if we will turn away from our sin and turn to God through the blood of Jesus Christ, we can find forgiveness and mercy and salvation for whatever it is that we've done. And we say, I'm done with that. And now I'm going to do things God's way because I know what kind of God, how merciful and gracious he really is. And this place, the church, has to be a place where hearts are broken, right? Over sin. What did David say was the kind of sacrifices that God wanted? A broken and contrite heart. The church has to be a place where hearts get broken over sin, doesn't it? I mean, I know it'd be easier if we never talked about sin and we never talked about the things that we're doing wrong and that have to stop. I know it'd be easier if we were never made to feel bad for the things that we've done. But we cannot be in a right relationship with God until our heart gets broken over sin. And the church has to be a place where hearts get broken, but it also has to be a place where hearts get quickly mended with mercy and grace and forgiveness because that's exactly what the gospel is all about. 
where people are told there is no way to downplay what you've done. But there is also no need to despair. You don't need to stay in shame and guilt. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he wants to put your life back together again. So take one step in the right direction, away from sin and toward God. Be quick to admit and quick to repent and run to him, and he will run to meet you with open arms. That's what, that's what baptism is all about, isn't it? So we're saying to the Lord, I've blown it, and I have no desire to make excuses for my sins, no desire to downplay my sins, only a desire to find mercy and forgiveness in Jesus. And not only do we admit that and say that and think that and feel that way when we're being baptized, but as followers of Jesus, there are constant opportunities for us to admit and repent of what we've done. And chances are, there are several of us, and we've been hiding it too long, or we've been downplaying it too long and making excuses too long. Or maybe there are those of us that have been in despair too long, thinking there's no way God could forgive me. Well, David's life is on display to say if God can forgive and cleanse and have mercy on a fornicating, adultering, murdering king like David, then he can have mercy on you. His son died and shed his blood so that you could have that forgiveness. So let's all run to him because he has open arms. If we can help you this morning to do so, come forward as we stand and sing.